Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. This morning we were talking about Ecclesiastes and we went through Ecclesiastes 11, but we had reviewed 9 and 10. And of course, he's, in his whole story, he's saying all is vanity. And of course, we pointed out that he doesn't actually say all is vanity, but an awful lot is vanity. An awful lot is empty. The wisdom of God is not vanity. But most people are unfamiliar with the wisdom of God and what the wisdom of God consists of. Because the wisdom of God comes to us by way of the tree of life, which is through revelation. And the wisdom of men comes to us by way of the tree of knowledge. It's our personal knowledge, our personal wisdom. And the idea of eating of the tree of life rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a very difficult concept to grasp for most people because everybody is absolutely sure that they're eating of the tree of life, that they're eating of the Holy Spirit and and because they can't recognize the difference between the Holy Spirit and the unholy spirits that are out there that are always trying to influence you and create for you a system of, of what is often unrighteous. Cain crouched at the door of destruction. He was endangering himself because of the way in which he organized the altars of Cain. You know, which probably included uh, all the people from Nod. (laughs) Because that's where he went and, and got a couple of wives in Nod. So what was really going on there? Everybody imagines they got it. There's two people, whole earth, walking around naked. There was nobody else. Nobody pays any attention to the fact that there were living souls out there. <laughs> they, they they don't want to look at, you know, maybe there was somebody else who just was alive, was creations of God, and were walking on the face of the earth. I mean, we're told to replenish the earth, which sounds like, okay, so it was, it needed to be replenished. So, what does that mean, replenished? Does that mean that there was somebody and then there was a great disaster and a lot of people died, but then God took the Adama and from that he molded Adam and Eve, and breathed his life into them. I know that's not what you're normally told. It was just that he actually went down by the river and he he scooped up some clay, because it says clay, even though that's the word Adama. And then he fashioned it like a little, you know, Barbie and Ken doll. And didn't make any clothes. They were just naked. He just fashioned them out of that clay. And then he breathed into them and then they're walking around. Cool. You know? That's hard for people to believe, or that's easier for people to believe than that there were people here on the face of the earth for maybe thousands of years before, but there was some sort of catastrophe. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't create the earth. 
and that the that the world was void and that the, there was some sort of event of time in which God created the earth. I mean, they want to believe it was done in exactly seven days. And you can believe that if you want. That's okay. I don't, I'm not going to preach against it or for it. I'm saying that's an interpretation. And uh, I don't necessarily know that it's a good interpretation or a correct interpretation, but I don't know if it's an incorrect interpretation. All I know is that, you know, if you look up some of these words, they're translated all kinds of different ways by the same people. And if you translate it the way you see it translated, then you have this vision that, like we talked this morning, this literal interpretation of what's going on. Like I say, in Genesis 2.9, it says, And out of the ground of the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see and what he would call them and whatsoever Adam called every living creature. And, and we see this phrase, beasts of the field. And if we look up the word beast, the basic root word is chetyat, which means the word there that they're translating beast. It is translated beast 76 times, but it's translated live 197 times. And life 144 times. 76 times is translated beast. Uh, 15 times is translated creature. But it, it's defined as something living or alive. So when we say beast of the field, you're thinking animals. All he's saying is things that are alive. That's all the word means. And we, we don't have anything more specific. I mean, he does go on to say, and every fowl of the air. Now, listen, look at the word field. Uh, what word is that? Now, that's actually spelled a couple of different ways, but basically it, it's shin, delet, uh, hey. That's the basic word. Now, we can actually go and look at the actual context and see what the actual letters written down are. But what does it mean? Yeah, it's translated field a lot. 292 times it's translated field. It's also translated country seventeen times. It's 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 trans it's defined as field. It's defined as land, and it can be cultivated land or you know just wild land. But basically, it's land as opposed to the sea, so it's not real specific. And like I say, sometimes it's written shin delit. Hey, sometimes it's written Shin Delet Yod. And Yod is the spark of life. So, if they're writing as Shin Delet Yod, it may mean something different than Shin Delet Hey. And so, you'd have to look at that to see what they're really saying. Now, again, you know, you can see this word beast of the fields and, and you'll see it in Genesis 2.20 and in, um, let's see, is it the same in, yeah, Genesis 3.1, Genesis 3.14. So over and over again we see this beast of the field, but uh, when when we look at Exodus 
9.19. Now, they don't say beast of the fields, but they say, Thou hast in the field, that's the word uh, in the land, for upon every man and beast which shall be found. That's a completely different word for beast. That's not the word that just means alive. That means, you know, well, it's, it's defined as beast, cattle, animals, you know, livestock. Usually domestic animals, but it can also include wild beasts. Now, that does mean beasts. And, uh, believe it or not, that's the word behemoth. That, that's what, that's, and that's completely different than what we saw as Che. Chet Yad. And so, Behema is actually cattle. Beasts, wild beasts of the field. But that's not the word we saw in Genesis. They didn't put that word there. They're both translated beast, but it's not the same word. And we see it in Exodus again at 9.22. Now, you got to remember, Genesis and Exodus are supposed to be both written by Moses. But they, even though the word field is the same word, or basically the same word, again, like we'd have to look at the individual text to find out if they didn't add extra letters. Now, they could add extra letters to express the idea of and beast of the field. You might find a bob on the front. Uh, if you're talking a whole bunch of them, you might add a mem. You, you could actually add a vav and a mem, and then that would mean something different. But basically, those that's the basic word. But, you know, if you get all the way into Exodus uh, 22, 5, there's another word translated beast. And it's a, it's a completely different word again. Well, not completely different. I mean, it begins with be-it. Behemoth began with be-it. Behemoth is be-it, hey, Mem, hey, that's Bima. That's that's the basic word. It's actually four letters long, so it's probably from another word. But uh, and, and it could probably be written be it hey mem, but they they say the root word is be it mem, be it hey mem hey. But this other word that we see in Exodus twenty two five, which is Translated beast shall put in his beast and shall feed in another man's field. So he's talking about animals. Well, that's beer, which is an interesting combination of letters because it's beer, and then it has uh, an yod resh. Well, that's like the word for city. They just put a be it on the front of the word for city. And they're saying that his beasts or his cattle, because it's translated cattle also in other places, that it kind of looks like the word city, but they put a be it on the front of it. And be it is the word letter that stands for house. They say, they admit that it is from another word, but the other word that it's supposedly from is be it an resh, which is a word that actually means burn, or said to mean burn. It can mean a way, it can mean kindle, it can be... So, how in the world does, do you get the word 
for burn, translated beast or cattle. Of course, it it could be that, you know, when you burn up something, you use up something. You know, and, and it's actually also translated brutish, and it's translated eaten a couple of times, and but it's often translated burn. Of course, when, you know, flames burn up wood, they eat up the wood. If they burn across a grassy field, they burn up the grass. So if you turn, you know, a hundred cows into somebody else's field, it's like a fire. It burns up the feed. They eat up all the feed in a very short period of time. I've had a hundred cows from my neighbor bust into my field and eat up all my feed. <laughs> so, so I'm familiar with that. And, and they're talking about that. But the point is, it's translated as a single English word, beast, along with those other words that we see translated into beasts. And so you, you kind of say, like, so what's the deal? Why are these different words translated into beast? Well, I don't want to make things too complicated. <laughs> but they got another word. They translated it into beasts in the field. And it doesn't actually mean beasts at all. It means torn or, or rabbit. But they say that is torn of beasts in the field. And they just kind of put the word beast in there, but the word that they actually have is terrify, which is, uh, is it Tetic? No, it's uh, Tet. Tet, Resh, uh, Pi, or Phi, Hey. And it means that which is torn, animal torn by beasts, etc. But doesn't necessarily mean you know, I mean, it's normally it's translated torn or raven, but they put the word beast in here in the translation. And that's okay. But the point is, it's a completely different. But it says beast in the field. And it's not the same as the beast of the field that we saw way back in Genesis. And we can go through that. There's lots of verses that have the word beast in it and, and beast of the field. And uh, it's different words, like we see in Leviticus twenty-seven, twenty-eight. It says, "And beasts, and of the field, of his possession." Well, that that's the the nine twenty-nine behema beast. So the point is, is they can sow a lot of confusion by translating these words, so that when you see beasts of the field, you're actually thinking that that's always animals. But it's actually things that are alive. And there could have been a lot of other people that were alive at that time. Because, I mean, like, I mean, I never heard a satisfactory answer as to why Cain. Well, Cain went to some land called Nod and got himself two wives. Who are they? You know, I mean, what do they mean by that? But evidently there are these other women somewhere that he could, he could marry. <laughs> but they weren't sons and daughters of... These other people weren't sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And it was only Adam and Eve that he breathed the Holy Spirit into. So that they could eat of the tree of life. Or choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
and fell away from the ways of God. As a matter of fact, they ran away from the ways of God. They hid from the ways of God. First they hid from God. And then God knew right away, well, what'd you do? And uh, we did this. And and he says, well, you know, I told you not to. And so, you know, instead of Adam saying, I know, Lord, I, I am ashamed of myself. It's my fault. I take the blame. My wife brought it to me and, and she said I should eat of it. And I shouldn't have. I knew it. You told me not to, but... I did it, and I am really sorry, and I would like to make recompense somehow. But that's not what he said. He blamed it on God, the woman you gave me. And see, we're still doing the same thing. You know, like I said, the theme on this show was going to be how to survive liberty under God. And, of course, that's the the theme of the whole Bible. It's telling you how to remain free souls. Those free living things in the field. <laughs> under God. And not under tyrants. Not under the Canes, Nimrods, Pharaohs, Caesars, and Bidens and Trumps of the world. Or Putins. Or any of these guys. You're not under them. You're free souls under God. How do you do that? Well, obviously, you have to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. And we've done a lot of talking about what that looks like and what that does not look like. And, of course, Jesus did a lot of talking about what that looks like and what it does not look like. It does not look like people biting one another. It does not look like people coveting one another's goods. It doesn't look like people desiring benefits from men who exercise authority and take away from your neighbor so that you can have free stuff. That does not look like that kingdom. And if you're looking for that, or if you found that, or you indulge in that, or you've developed an appetite for those benefits, you have reason to turn around your thinking and go back the other way. And if you don't, well, bad things are going to happen. Now, bad things are going to happen anyway. But how do we survive the bad things? Well, we know that the early Christians survived a lot of bad things. They call them dearths. In the King James. You know, famines, depressions, you know, economic breakdowns, shortages of food, what have you. And we know that some of that was from guys like Nero, who who robbed the kitty. I mean, he was just greedy, 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 greedy. And, you know, like we're told that Nero got stabbed a bunch of times in the face. Interesting, they're all stabbing him in the face. And the guy that started stabbing him was his own servant. Who, who brought him there. He had gone down in southern Italy and enlisted a bunch of ships that did sail. But supposedly he wasn't on them. Supposedly he went back to Rome and when he was walking along in Rome, uh, all of a sudden, this crowd of people said, there he is, let's get him. Because they know he'd, he'd pilfered the treasury. They know he stole all kinds of stuff. He had taken all kinds of money out, been doing it on a regular basis, took all kinds of supplies and food, bought all these ships that he had down there on the southern coast of Italy. And they thought he was making a run for it, but there he was back again in Rome. And so they started chasing him and started coming after him. And guess what happened? The servant who came with him, who was later rewarded fantastic sum of property and riches, turned on... You know, he's like an aide. You know, 
Which, you know, guys like Schumer should be aware of this, you know, like your aides could turn on you. <laughs> He's kind of protected by evil spirits, I think. I don't know. I've seen him, I've seen him sitting in Congress just talking to himself. Just waving his hand and talking to himself right in Congress. I mean, that video exists. It's out there. And there's nobody there. He doesn't have an earphone in either. He's just like talking to himself. Right in the middle of the seat. So, unless he's got an earbud that sticks way inside his ear, I don't know. I think the guy's, the guy is just, you know, I see evil. And, and I'm not trying to say bad things about him, I'm saying that to protect you, and if he was here, I would tell him that. Is he needs to repent. And he needs to seek the kingdom of God, because I think he's in danger of being consumed by evil. Same with Pelosi, same with, same with a lot of Republicans. You know, I mean, Mitch McConnell has been doing bad things for a long time. It's not a new thing with Mitch McConnell. I mean, and, and it's starting to show. He's walking around in a daze, too. You know, your eyes get so dark, and then you just go dark, dark. But I'm not saying... The, the problem isn't these guys. That, that's those guys' problem. The problem is you. That you're not really seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But, you know... So, you know, I've done whole programs on this that Nero, all of a sudden his servants start stabbing him. But he doesn't stab him in the heart. He doesn't, doesn't stab him in the back. He stabs him in the face. He starts stabbing him in the face. What are you doing stabbing him in the face? I mean, that's the easiest thing for a person to block and protect. And then he's laying there and then the other guys show up and he's wearing... There he is, sitting there, wearing, you know, Nero's clothes. He's got Nero's rings on. He looks a lot like Nero. But, you know what he says? And we know this. This is recorded throughout history. He says, the actor dies. So, was that Nero, or was that an actor? Because there's a lot of reason to believe that a lot of time Nero wanted to be off doing his own thing. But, you know, there was a lot of... You know, you see this with the the royalty in England. They have to, you know, stand at the window and wave. The Pope does that. He he stands up there and waves. Now, nobody can hardly see him, but he looks like the Pope. And he's waving. Is that really the Pope or is that a a double-ganger? That he just used for, you know, to stand out there in the cold and wave for a couple hours. But he's actually in the back room doing whatever he does in the back room. And I, I don't know about the Pope, but... You know, I could imagine. I think the Queen of England, That's you're always seeing the Queen of England. But I'm not sure you're always seeing everybody else. These guys don't really want to take the time to stand there in the cold and wave. And I'm pretty sure Nero didn't. But that that's the theory, is that that wasn't Nero at all. But that was his doubleganger. And they, they needed to stab him in the face that, so that nobody actually recognized that, wait a minute, you know, that doesn't really look like Nero. He's... He's got a little mole here that that was never there, you know. And it's, you know, but they stabbed him in the face so many times they they didn't know, and they accepted that. But like I said, the ship sailed, and it was known for hundreds of years and written about by historians. Hundreds of years later, that Nero went to Jerusalem with his ships. And, you know, he had military escort and all this stuff, but these are his private little military guard. And then what happened? 
he picked up a gal in Jerusalem. And she's a good-looking little gal. She was also a princess in Israel. And she married him. And a uh, little brunette. And then they went off. I'm not sure where they went. Some people say they went up to uh, northern country. They, you know, they had a lot of soldiers, but they didn't go and invade. They went and they, but they, there's reason to believe that they had already had a place picked out. They already had soldiers there. They had a settlement there, and they went up there, and it was one of these secluded little, very fertile valleys, and they dug in. And they buried their treasures. And they won the hearts of the people with a lot of the treasure that they brought. And of course they had the soldiers, but they weren't, they weren't trying to upset people. They were trying to get the support of the people. And he lived out his life up there. With this little Jewish gal. And they had children. And they had more children. And they went up there with a few other people. It wasn't just Nero. I mean, it wasn't just the soldiers. But uh, they pulled their effort because they could see that the economy of Rome was in trouble and there was going to be wars and rumors of wars and that, uh, you know, Jerusalem was probably going to be utterly destroyed and they were right on about that. And uh, so they uh, they took off. Disappeared. And uh, they lived up there for a long time. And then one of their ancestors, way down the line, you know, thousands of years later, or at least over a thousand years later, found one of the buried treasures. You know, probably they had a little code or something to find the, the treasures. And somebody figured it out. They figured where the treasure was. It was an extra treasure over what they had before. I mean, they were probably pretty wealthy all this time. But all of a sudden they were really wealthy because they found one of the buried treasures. They may have found more since, I don't know. But the rumor is that that is the Rothschilds. <laughs> That's where the Rothschilds got their fortune, which they started pooling to make more fortunes, and that the Rothschilds are actually descendants of Nero. And uh, then, so now the question is, are there anybody else? One of the things the Rothschilds do, and it's not just the Rothschilds, there's other families as well as the Rothschilds. Like I said, the Rothschilds have to marry somebody and they can't keep marrying Rothschilds. So they intermarry with other families that they have, other wealthy families. And, and we know who some of those families are. The Reitzman families. And, you know, they're in business together. They, ha- they own lots of stuff. And a lot of their business, we don't, like, they, they, they're not really shell companies, but they're diversified. And what they do is they take illegitimate children and they put them in positions of power, but they still have power over those children. They delegate the power to run this business or the power to run that business, but they kind of oversee everything. So they have all these kind of hidden assets, you know, like the big guy that they can depend upon. You know, but they try to keep it all in the family. And now, is that all true? You know, I mean, that's a conspiracy theory. We we should call up Q and see if he wants to get in on that. <laughs> I think it's true. 
for a lot of reasons. And a lot of reasons I won't go into here. But the point is, is that it contradicts what everybody knows as history. But that's not the only thing that we can contradict that is known as history. <laughs> you know, I, I've written about Constantine. And I've added to our page on Constantine. And, uh, you know, so what did Constantine do? The article began with an article, Allurement of Wolves, in the Constantine Church, in the Nicene Council. And I, I need to expand on that in my spare time. But we're going to be going into Ezra as soon as we get finished up with the Ecclesiastes. But I just thought I'd throw in some of these notes that I just added about the Council Constantinople and all scriptures. I, I had a section down there. The vision, that's that section. It appears that Eusebius, I call him Eusebius, I often say Eusebius, but it's actually Eusebius, perpetuated this myth of a vision by Constantine concerning his defeat of superior forces of his rival, Maxentius, who was actually his partner at one time, but then became his rival, at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge on October 28th, in 312 A.D., what we would call 312 A.D. We, I mean, we changed all the calendars. That wasn't the year. If you asked them at that time, they wouldn't say 312 A.D. But retrospectively, we've worked it out, and we call it 312 A.D. Eusebius tells of on the 27th of October, with the armies all preparing for battle, that Constantine had this vision, this like vision and dream. But there, there seems to be no evidence that this vision that supposedly led him to fight under the protection of the Christian God. There doesn't seem to be any evidence before 325. Certainly the details of that vision, however, differ also between the sources reporting it. You know, like, like Pantheus, who, who was a writer, uh, I think he was born in like, 240 A.D. And uh, he writes about the Roman Emperor Constantine I and states that in the night before the battle, which would be the 27th, that uh, Constantine was commanded in a dream to delineate the heavenly sign of the shield of his soldiers. And supposedly following the commands of his dream, whoever it was in his dream, Mark the shields with a sign denoting Christ, which is described as the starogram, or uh, what some people call the Latin cross, which is a cross with kind of a like a P-like fashion on it. But now we have another account from Eusebius, who writes in around 325. Uh, A.D., that uh, it was the key row. You know, it was just like the, 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 supposedly the first two letters of Christ's name. The key is the chi, Christ part, and the row is the R part of the key row. And a key row, when you write it, the P looks like, a, I mean, the R, the, the row, what we call row in, in the text, looks like a, a P. And the uh, 
T looks like an X, which some say is a cross. And of course, sometimes the cross is written as an X. And, and sometimes the Tav is written as an X. But it depends on what time and error and all that stuff. Normally, to me, the Tav is a door. And I think that's a more appropriate way to write it. But sometimes it's an X and sometimes it looks like a, a cross. But it, it's a door. And, you know, we can get into, you know, actually I have in some of the early pamphlets on sophistry and, and the, I have mm-hmm. pictures of early letters, etc. Early writing. And there's early pictographs for the sun. And we actually see that in some of the Roman symbols uh, that were used by the military, which show up in other archaeological writings that I've been looking at, which is why I added this little section uh, to our article on the allurement of wolves and Constantine and everything. There, There is av- evidently no evidence of the truth of this story. It's in the Ark of Constantine which was put together by the command of Constantine and by the design of Constantine in 312. It was finally dedicated in 315. So, by 315, they're making it and they have all these uh, pictures and all these symbols and symbols of pictures in this Ark of Triumph, this Ark of Constantine. That is, and there's a lot of interesting stuff you can, I was trying to think of some of the archaeologists. There's a woman archaeologist who's done a lot of work on this. And she's probably in her 40s, dark-haired lady, thin, everything. And she's actually, you know, like she built models in her house and she set it all up. And she was also putting in all the things that were there that are there no more. Because there was a huge, giant, must have been almost 40 feet high, bronze statue of the sun god. Which originally the story was that he prayed to the sun god and it told him what to do. And then the next night on the 27th he got another vision and said, Oh, forget about the sun god. Do the Jesus Christ thing. Jesus Christ appeared to you and said, I want you to go out and kill people. And I want you to put my symbol, which is Christ's symbol, the Kiro, on the front of your, your uh, shields and conquer in my name. I don't believe that. That doesn't sound like the Christ I know. But somehow, there are a lot of people did believe it. And I believe that most of the real Christians didn't believe it. But a lot of the new Christians who became Christians when Constantine said things like, everybody in Milan get baptized and become Christians. He left out the part about repenting and becoming Christians. And we explain all that in the article. But all the pictures from head to toe and there, there was a particular, uh, he's not really an archaeologist, he's kind of a filmmaker, he was a little bit of a journalist for a while, Simka, Jacobovici. He, he's willing to explore strange ideas. I actually had mentioned some stuff this morning that when you find a tomb uh, in, doing archaeology, when you're just building in Israel, and you uncover a tomb when you're excavating to build whatever it is that you're going to build. And, uh, you know, it's it's like a tomb. It's like a cave, like the one that they put Christ's body in. 
And there'll be also areas, you know, boxes and bones in there and other things where people get buried in there. And uh, you go in there and get the artifacts out and all this stuff and you seal it up because it's not going to be, you don't want kids playing in there. And, but when you find it, you have to put a pipe in at the top that goes all the way down to the tomb and it comes up and it curves over and you have to paint the pipe green. It's a metal pipe. And and it's pretty thick. It's like four inches or five inches thick. And uh, that's to allow the spirits that have become accustomed to living in that tomb to go and come as they will. That's the law. You have to do that. (laughs) So I thought I was uh, like, really? Wow. That's peculiar. And so somebody wanted to put a camera down there because he had uncovered the oh, well, this the guy Sim, Simka Jacob uh, I can't say it real fast but Jacob Vici and uh, he wanted to put a camera down there but something was blocking it so he got a plumber to come and cut a hole in the pipe and they'll, they'll weld that back on but they cut this hole in the pipe and he pulls out all the garbage and it's you know some bottles and garbage and just trash and stuff and people stick their hand up there and drop it down <laughs> to get rid of garbage and so anyway it's, a lot of times it will fall all the way to the, to the bottom but it gets hung up on these little bolts they use to hook the pipes together but uh, anyway they got that out of the way and put the camera down there he's got a whole series on you can see it on TV you can look up the name I think you can see it on YouTube and he's got a lot of far out there ideas, but he is pretty sure that Constantine altered Christianity so that he would get more power. And and he's the one who brought in a lot of what a lot of people say, you know, are pagan rituals, you know, and everything. The Mithra, because, you know, the sun got Apollo and all that stuff. Uh, that was all the Mithra concept. And, and I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm s- certain that he did. But I'm not sure that Mithra was all that bad to begin with either. I mean, the principles of righteousness have been around for a long time. And whenever anybody forms it into an, a formal religion, there will come along people who will subvert it and turn it into something else other than what it was. Like I, I was saying, Arthavedas and... And a lot of those early books of the Hindu religion were actually written by Abraham. I believe they were written by Abraham. And it says it was written by Brahmana, which eventually became Abram, and then became Abraham. We see that in the text where Abraham, Abram becomes Abraham. And, and we know that Brahmana was married to somebody, an Egyptian princess named Haggai. And we know that Brahmana was also married to his half-sister named Sari Vista. Well, is that Sarah? Is that Haggai? Is, is it the same guy? And, and did he write the Arthavedas? They're talking about storks and monkeys and all this stuff? Well, if you misinterpret the words, you can come up with all kinds of crazy ideas. Like the beasts of the field are just animals. But maybe the beasts of the fields are the living souls that are out there on the land. That maybe didn't have the Holy Spirit breathed into them. 
but still have the power of choice. Still have the power to do the right thing or to do the wrong thing or to follow the right way or to follow the wrong way. And could have the Holy Spirit breathed into them, the same as we see with Christ and the apostles. When he comes out of the tomb, he goes up to the apostles and he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Is that what God was doing with Adam and Eve when he breathed on them? Just giving them the Holy Spirit? Something went on with Moses. We know this, that, that Moses... You know, he had this tremendous responsibility and was always pleading for the people. And he says, you know, give some of the power that you have given to me, give it to these others, the Sanhedrin. Let them take over this role. Because it's, you know, I've done it faithfully, but it's become kind of a burden. And God, you know, the Lord, Yahweh, allowed that to happen. They talked about that. So it isn't that he had less of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Moses did get into trouble. He got into trouble because he took credit for what God provided. You don't want to do that. So, you know, write that down. Don't take credit for what God has presented to you. But this idea of interpretation, the idea that Constantine, why wouldn't there be a Kiro or or the, the, that other cross the starogram on Constantine's arch. He he knows if the story was true and he really won at the bridge because of the apparition of God or of Jesus and that that's when he was becoming a Christian. You should see those symbols in the arch that he built in commemoration of that triumph. In 3.12 and 3.13 and 3.14 and finally dedicated in 3.15. That one of those symbols should have showed up there. I mean, he was supposed to have put it on all of their shields. But he didn't put it on the Arch of Triumph. You don't see it on the shields of the men that are etched into the Arch of Triumph. You, you do see symbols of the sun god. But you don't see symbols... Of Christianity. Of course, he never claimed to be a Christian, really. I mean, he kind of claimed to be, but he never got baptized till after he was dead. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. But the fact is, is, the fact is, I don't really believe that he ever had that vision. He had the vision of something by, by 312, 315, 320, because the story of the vision didn't really show up till around 324, 325. Supposedly, after a festival, a big feast that they had, where Eusebius, Eusebius is at that festival. And supposedly, Constantine approaches him and wants him to promote this story of this vision. Which there's no evidence of before that. Which is, you know, more than 20 years. Well, is it 20 years? No. Well, it's a dozen years after the actual event. All of a sudden, he's got comes up with the story of vision where he was fighting in the name of Christ. And then he legalizes Christianity back in or 319. And he tries to get... And, and he converts 
the public temples over to Christian temples. And he gives them millions and millions of dollars, much of which he had confiscated when he killed Maxentius and other people. So it's blood money. And they're putting it in the treasury of the church and saying that we're the church established by Jesus Christ. I don't think Jesus would have done that. But see, you don't know all history. And that's why I'm in Constantine. So I'm going to go back and, you know, I should be looking at it because I will take calls. So there are a lot of people there. A few people have dropped away. Other people have come on. But if you want to ask a question, you know, you, you raise your hand by pressing one. And then I'll see it and I'll answer your question. But anyway, uh, the question was, how how do you have liberty under God? Well, you don't go the way of Constantine. You don't go the way of Nero. You have to go the way of Christ. In order to go the way of Christ, you might want to know what the way of Christ looks like. And ultimately, if you're going to survive liberty under God, you're going to need God on your side. You're going to need to draw near enough to God to know what God wants you to do. Because what you do is not going to save you. But, you know, what the Israelites did when they left Egypt, they went down the wadi. They didn't go the regular route. We cover this in our study on Exodus. They went this odd route. It was actually easier on the people to some degree because they're going down this open, wide, sandy wadi. And maybe there was some extra grass there for their animals at that particular time because it had rained or something. And because uh, that's what the wadi is. It's kind of a wash through the mountains. And so they may have had grass, but they had to keep moving because the animals were eating the grass as they went. But they had to take old people, young people, everybody. So this is their first experience of working and traveling together. And they finally get down on the shores of the Red Sea and they're down there, but they can only stay there for so long. And they're going to have to either go north. There's not a lot of ways to go south, but lo and behold, they got the army coming behind them. And everybody thought they were trapped. But there was a way out. God knew there was going to be a way out. And he was going to arrange that. Like I say, some people didn't follow that route. They went another way because they thought that was better because they look at, well, we'll be trapped. won't make any sense. It's not logical. My tree of knowledge of the circumstances is telling me, don't go that way. Other people went because they didn't, they didn't know what else to do. They didn't want to abandon them. Some people were falling. See, some people are already waking up. Not everybody, but some people are waking up. And some people are saying, that guy seems to be a little bit awakened. Not woke, awakened. So we're going to follow him. And they get down there. And now they're caught between the Red Sea and the mountains. And they could go up along the coast a little ways. But they can't outrun the chariots. And the chariots there are in big force. And they think they're trapped. And then this bizarre pillar of fire, at least it looks like fire at night and smoke during the day, whatever, that's floating around in the sky, goes over and stands between them. I mean, the artists always draw this pillar of fire that's just like swirling around and everything. That's the artist's rendition. They don't have anything to go on to make you think that it looks like that. 
It evidently had something to do with the burning bush. But the, he thought it was a burning bush when he saw this light way out on the desert. When he got closer to it, he was still calling it the burning bush because he didn't know what it was. But it didn't go out. It just kept going like a fire. But it wasn't a fire. Somebody was talking to him out of this light. This thing that had this appearance of light out there in the darkness of the desert, which is, you know, you don't see cars driving around out there, you know. There's not people with flashlights, so where's this light coming from? So he goes out to sea, and there's somebody talking to him. And we know that somebody, you know, like he went up to it during the day at other times, and it opens up on the side, and somebody talks to him. What is that? Well, you can do all kinds of speculation, and I'm not doing any speculation. I'm just saying, when you look at the artwork that people are doing, that's speculation. But somehow or other people can believe the artwork better than, you know, just say, well, I don't know exactly what it looked like. They want to they wanna think of the image. Well, isn't that, aren't you worshipping a graven image when you do that? Absolutely, worshipping a graven image when you do that. You don't want to be doing that. You know, we don't know what it looked like exactly. We got a little little hints, but it's really easy to start filling in the blanks. Very dangerous, though. So you don't want to do that. So Constantine wasn't a Christian. He wasn't doing Christian things. He was still killing people for a long time after he supposedly became a Christian. There was a time when he was called out by one of his own bishops that he had killed him. He killed, like he annihilated, what is it, like 10,000 people in a village. And he just annihilated it. And then he could hand out all that property and whatever was left over to anybody else who wanted to go to that village and move in. We can have lots of preconceived notions, but if, if the fact is, is that when I talk about liberty under God, you have to realize that you're not at liberty under God right now. You're not free people. You're, you're back in the bondage of Egypt. That's a real hard sell. People don't want to admit that. Well, what was the bondage of Egypt? 20% of your labor belonged to the government. And whenever you did any kind of work, 20% of your labor had to go to the government. And now they had a system of welfare and they had a system, a social safety net that provided you with free bread. Uh, when there was famines or shortage, and there occasionally there were. You know, sometimes the floods didn't come down the Nile, and the crops didn't do as well. So they had to have a certain amount of grain. I mean, that's, you know, they, they might be prosperous seven years in a row, and then maybe a year or two, they, they don't get the floods. Or they get, you know, less floods. So they can't grow as many crops. And so, you know, they put in dikes and, or dams, uh, cataracts. I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> anyway, that and that would divert water out on the desert, and they could grow grain and large amounts of grain. And then they would grain keeps in the desert, so they put put it in. You know, they, that's what they got these bricks. So they build these granaries that mice can't get in because it's made with bricks. And they put the grain in there. And in the bad years, they have enough. And that's their social safety net. And it's run through the temples, who also is in charge of weights and measures. 
And if you read our article on Sumer, or the turtle dove goddess, you'll know that they had the same thing in Sumer. That is social safety net. That's why people went to the cities. Because they had social safety nets. Now, how you fund that social safety net is different. The the dove goddess Nisi, they funded it through compelled offerings. The pharaoh funded it through compelled offerings, through a core V system of statutory bondage where you had to pay in. And he even increased the taskmasters to make sure that everybody was paying in their fair share. Nobody was left behind. But it's a system of benefactors who exercise authority. Which Jesus said we weren't to be like that. But he, Jesus knew that the other governments of the world were like that. And the living souls of the field will either associate with those men who exercise authority or they will associate with men like Moses who had a system based on free will offerings. That everybody knew that this is, you know, you should give the first fruits and you should give, you know, one-tenth of everything you produce. Not 20%, but 10%. You should. And of course, like Christ said, but it had to be free will offerings. Moses said that. It had to be free will offerings. And Jesus comes along and says it has to be charity. That it's not to be like the governments who exercise authority and force the contributions because that would be taking a bite out of your neighbor. I mean, that's just in the text. And you're not only supposed to take care of your family, and your your fellow congregants and your congregations of tens, hundreds, and thousands. But you're also supposed to take care of the beasts of the fields. You know, the, the other living souls of the fields. You're supposed to provide for them. In a way, this strengthens them. And of course, some people don't do that. Nero didn't do that. Rothschilds don't do that. FDR doesn't do that. I mean, he provided for people. His system prolonged the depression, made the people more dependent, and didn't do anything to end the bankruptcy. Because what was the two things that the dove goddess did? What was the two things that the temples did? Well, of course, it's just, it's just obvious, natural. They're storing grain that they're collecting from the people in big silos. So they 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 know that I get twenty percent of this field. You're growing grain. They they know they're going to get twenty percent of that field. But how do they know you didn't sneak a couple bags away during the middle of the night? Well, they could go out there and walk, pace off the field, or measure the field. You know, width, length. Look at the grain. How many seeds is each grain do? How many seeds are in every square foot? You can calculate it up. That's going to be 100 bushels. He knows he's going to get 20 of those bushels. So, when the harvest comes, and you bring in five bushels, and say, that's all I got. So, well, that don't match up. As I walked that field, you should get at least 20 bushels. You know, maybe 18. 
But you can't get away with five. Stop fudging. You go find the other 15 bushels. You get them down here. I'm going to send the taskmasters after you and whoop your hide. <laughs> so, so that's the way it works. That's the, that's, that's what they were doing in Egypt. And that was run through the temples. Well, what, what does the skill of that priest have besides he knows how to store grain? Well, he knows how to measure grain. He, he weights and measures. You, you say, okay, well, I got a hundred pound bag here. He says, we'll put it on the scale. Well, no, it's a hundred pound bag. Trust me. I, I can, I, I picked it up. I'm sure it's a hundred pounds. No, no, put it on the scale. Well, he puts it on the scale and it's 78 pounds. He says, well, wait a minute. You're missing 22 pounds of grain. That's not a hundred pounds. Well, maybe your weights are wrong. Maybe your scales are wrong. Well, no, the priests were in charge of the scales. Same with the dove goddess. Weights and measures. Because you had to have just weights and measures. So the priesthood knew how to measure space, time, grain, oils. They knew how to do that. Because they had to do that. This person gave this much uh, this person needs this much. I can uh, weigh that out, measure it. They knew how to do that. Because their job, the priest's job, was the redistribution of wealth. So that nobody starved. That nobody went hungry. But the kingdom of God is redistribution of wealth through charity. The kingdom of the world is redistribution of wealth through force. That's simple. That's simple. How can you do it through charity if you don't come together? If you don't have... You, you, you know, like I talked this morning about Ecclesiastes 11. Where you cast your bread upon the waters. Which is not really throwing bread out there. It's you give it out to the other people. Well, how do you do that? Do you just, you know, like throw $20 bills out the window? No. You have to have a system to do it so you make sure that you don't waste what you're offering. And you have to look at it amongst yourself, find men you trust, and put them in charge of doing this. Now, I also talked about the seven, even eight, that you can put in charge of an institution that was a church institution that allowed you to redistribute to the needy all around the world. Because they had access to what we would call banking, which is essential in shipping. Because you're going to ship funds from here to there. You're going to ship grain from here to there. You have the people that have to receive it. You have to have people that can pay for it. And he says, can you buy me 5,000 bushels of grain and put it in, you know, see what, 18 wheeler, what does it carry? 80,000 pounds? I don't know, is that gross weight? But say 50,000 pounds of grain. And you want to ship it from South Dakota to Oregon. Well, you got to know how to measure that. You got to know how to weigh that. You got to know how to, you got to have a system by which to ship it. You got to have a person to receive it and a person to send it. And somebody may have to get paid. You're going to buy the grain from this guy. Somebody's going to have to pay him over there. So you need access to banking. Your access to the, you know, what was that one coming? I could actually play it. I could actually pull it up on my phone. 
I wonder if I could do that. But anyway, I'm going to try to play this to see if the mic picks it up, see how it works. But this was a comedian. And, uh, and he, he you know, I just saved it to share it with somebody else because I thought it was funny. I really regret having gotten the vaccine. I'm sure it's fine. But I just wish when the state told me to do something, I'd be the sort of person who said no. But it turns out I'm the sort of person who says Fine. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. You're telling me it's important. Okay. I, and all they had to do was say, you won't be allowed to go into pubs for like a month. And I was like, put it in me. That's what I'm upset about is I had a principle temporarily. I don't want, oh, if I was in Nazi Germany, I would have stood up to the regime. I wouldn't stand up to not being able to go to a pub for a month. Frank, she's in that attic. Then I saw her. It doesn't matter what the point of principle was. The point is I would have been a chill. And then I have to live with that for the rest of my three or four more years before I have a heart attack. So, anyway, we'll see how that turned out. I don't know if you heard that well enough. But anyway, uh, the, the, the reality is, is that... Uh, you know, we don't really have the principles that we think we have. We, and you have to build those principles. You have to practice them. This is what seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is all about. And and you have to develop that principles. You know, like I saw Anne Frank. She's, I, he wouldn't stand up for his principles if he couldn't go to the pub. Because he didn't really have any principles. He thought he had them, but he, it was only temporarily. Well, if you're going to survive liberty, you have to have principles. You have to have integrity. And it has to be ingrained into you as a matter of life and death. It, it, whether it's your life and death or somebody else's life and death. Like he was going to turn in and break. You know, I mean, it's a comedy, but uh, and, and it's life or death. Would we stand up for one another? Will we develop the trust necessary for for a free society? One of the things I wanted to talk about, like I said, is some of the things that are uncovered by some of these archaeologists. And uh, they were looking at, and I mentioned it this morning on the program, that Roman soldiers were being converted to the Christian teachings. And so there's an actual thing that floats around that we see it carved in stone. We see it carved in stones in Italy. We see it carved in st- stones uh, down in Egypt. We see it carved in stones in uh, uh, different parts of the Middle East and uh, up in Greece and all the way over to Great Britain. We, we find it carved in stone or in put into some sort of ceramics. And we see symbols there are definitely Christian symbols mixed with Roman symbols in places where they were hiding to meet to supposedly worship. And uh, we find some of these symbols and, and, and there's one particular one which is a sator square. They call it a sator square. And what it is is it's a square with, you know, what is it, five letters, five letters up, five letters across. And so then you have, you know, 5 times 5 is 25 spaces and 25 letters. And you have the word Sator. Uh, I think it's at the bottom. And Rotas is at the top. And Rotas is Sator backwards. 
and there's another arepo, which is also can be written uh, apara. And another word, tenant, that is the same forward as it is backwards. I think there's a, another couple of words in there, but at least those words are in there. And uh, those uh, that sator square is each of those words has a meaning, and each of those words together it suggests a whole complicated like code principle. You know, what you reap, you sow. What you sow, you reap. Well, you know that. You know that work ethic is essential. That you're responsible, and see those principles were very strong amongst the Roman centurions. Originally, the Roman army was a militia, it was an all volunteer army. I mean, you you brought your own swords, you brought your own spears, you you brought your own uniform. And you went out and you trained together. And and eventually, you know, during especially during a time of war, they would help, you know, provide you with food and all this kind of stuff. But you were the militia to protect Rome. But they had some things that they did in the Roman army where you could actually, you know, like if you had to go and fight a Gaul or, or a Teuton or something and you defeated them, you could take a spoil. Uh, Israel wasn't supposed to do that, but Rome... They didn't have that prohibition. And, of course, the army was reorganized under Julius Caesar's uncle. And Julius Caesar had been a priest. Somebody was astonished to find, find that out. If they were listening to the programs regularly, they would know that, that he was one of the high priests. If you're looking at the website, you would know that. They were asking me about trusts. And, and of course, in the Free Church Report, we explained trusts. We, and... Preparing you, we explain trust. And we, we show you a model trust uh, that has guidelines and, and purpose. Because the church is a trust. But it's a trust created by Christ. Just like the, the Levites were a trust. They were a sacred purpose trust. Created by Moses. When he built the altars of Nisi. Jehovah Nisi. They they were trust. When you give money to the Levites or sheep to the Levites or oils to the Levites, whatever it is you produce, maybe you're a basket maker and you gave them a bunch of baskets and they say, real cool, we need these baskets. We can use these. Because somebody else is going to bring us a bunch of walnuts and, or almonds or something or pistachios and uh, we'll give him a bunch of the baskets and he can fill those baskets up. Because he has to buy the baskets. But if you've already given them to us for free, we can make arrangements that he just gets the baskets. And then they're responsible for the redistribution of those nuts and, and the sheep and whatever is needed for the needy of society, the widows and orphans and needy of society. But their society is based on the idea that if you don't work, you don't eat. That you have to take care of yourself. And even... Even, there were a lot of widows in the early church. Because a lot of people were persecuted and killed. I mean, not most of them, but there were enough of them. And then people do die. And Paul says, you know, if you're a young widow, get married again. Don't be a burden on the church. Why are widows a burden on the church? Because they're the social safety net. Instead of the social safety net of Rome. 
Because they took care of their widows too. They just didn't do it with free will offerings. And Caesar figured out a way, well, we'll, we'll conquer the Gauls, all the different tribes, the Cambri and all the different tribes of the Gauls. We'll sell them into slavery. We'll get the money. I'll give it to the Temple of Jupiter and the priests I know there will redistribute it and we'll get real popular. And then when they try to try us for war crimes, they won't do it. Because, you know, they'll give us, you know, a plea deal. <laughs> that, was, that was the thing in the news. You know, Hunter Biden getting a plea deal. I mean, we know, we have facts that are showing the Bidens have been, I mean, they were, they were so audacious about it. They got caught. And, you know, you could probably catch Mitch McConnell if the Republicans were as honest as they say they are. But there's a power structure. And if they buck the power structure, all of a sudden they don't get any support from. So money is controlling them. Now, unfortunately, a lot of the money is coming from places like Pfizer and the military industrial complex and all these other things. Well, in those days... The military industrial complex was Caesar and he had lots of money because he sold lots of women and children into slavery. Slave trade, you know how that is. You, you don't think that the, the, the cartels are donating to your congressmen and your senators to keep the borders open? You know, I mean, Nancy Pelosi and the whole Pelosi family, which includes the governor now of uh, California. They originally made their fi- fortunes by drug dealing with the cartels. That's how they got their money. I mean, that's just a historical fact. They don't want to admit it. But there's plenty of evidence. But who's going to prosecute them? I mean, we have out and out blatant crimes and they're getting away with. It. Not that, you know, that the Republicans aren't committing crimes. That Which is why everybody... Everybody was kind of afraid of... I mean, Bush was for open borders. You know, he would, it wasn't until Trump where they actually were going to do something. They always could have done something. But, you know, what you really want to do if you want to close the border, you don't have to build a wall. <laughs> but I don't know how you're going to do it without building a wall. But all you have to do is end social welfare through the state. And every Christian should be in favor of doing that. Because Christians know that we are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other but call ourselves benefactors. We know we should not be that way. So, what's the deal? How are you going to live at liberty without sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands? Some people think, well, I'm already in the kingdom and we're at liberty. But then they send the people that they know that they are supposedly preaching the gospel. They send them to men who exercise authority. Men in government who exercise authority one over the other. Who take away from their neighbor. Who borrow against the future of their neighbor's children to provide them with free benefits. They send them to that. And they think they're Christians. Now we don't tell people they can't do that because we don't want to see you starve. We're telling you what you should be doing. If you want to survive at liberty, because we know the greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. We know, we know that we are not to make a habit of eating 
at the table of kings because they serve deceitful dainties. As a matter of fact, if we have an appetite for those dainties of the rulers of the world, we should put a knife to our throat because they're deceitful meats. And which they say should be for our welfare is actually a snare. And that's what brought us into the bondage of Egypt is that we had to depend upon their social safety net. And their social safety net was not based on charity. Now, admittedly, the original Pharaoh's social safety net was based on the fact that Joseph told them to save your grain. Grow as big a crops as you can, build silos of bricks, and save the grain because there's a big famine coming. He told them to do that, and he did that. He didn't tax anybody to do it. He just put up the reserve. And like I said this morning, governments all over the world have been building reserves of grain and ready-to-eat meals and put them in underground shelters. And You know, it used to be, it used to be a conspiracy theory to think that they could drill these tunnels deep underneath the ground for hundreds of miles. And then, you know, then all of a sudden they drilled the tunnel <laughs> from, from England to, to uh, France. Switzerland's got tunnels all over. I mean, you can actually go online and see them drilling these giant bored holes to the side of mountains. And here comes the drill bit through the side of the mountain being driven by a nuclear-powered drilling machine. And, and Elon Musk has some of those drilling machines. And he's not only drilling, he's making bricks with the residue that he has coming out the bag. <laughs> so he's back to making bricks. But he's even in the bondage of Egypt. And it alters the character of the people. It, it makes you where you think you have principles. But when it comes down to really making a principled choice, you won't do it. You know, and, you know, I, I recently was talking to somebody who took a, a job in a nearby town. And it's, uh, it's going to be a controversial job. And, uh, and there's a lot of reasons why it's controversial for them, which I won't go into, unless you come to the Burning Bush Festival and we'll talk about it. But uh, I said that you need to keep a record of everything. And all the people that say they will, they support you 100%, when people come and attack you unfairly and unjustly, who lie like Claggett in the the story of Billy Budd. They won't come to your aid. All those people who say they, they support you 100%. They will not support you. Like that comedian. They will turn you in. You, you need to know that you can look out amongst yourselves to find men you trust. And the only way to do that is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start taking care of one another through charity. Because a lot of people are not going to be charitable. They're not going to give anything. Or they're going to give very little. And they're not going to give regularly. They're not going to give their first fruits. Because the Spirit of God is not really in them. And you'll know it. You don't have to condemn them. People, there's absolutely no need to condemn anybody. Everybody will condemn themselves. If they are to be condemned. And everybody will repent and and, and strive and be diligent to do the right thing. That was one of the things this morning when we were talking in Ecclesiastes 11 that uh, I was saying that uh, 
Anyway, I was I was reading a number of quotes where the word you know, study to show thyself approved is actually the word that means to be diligent to show thyself approved. Because we have to be doers of the word. In Second Peter one ten it says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence that's the word that they translate study over there in Timothy. It says give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. So he's talking about being a doer. A doer of the word. That's the same Peter who says through covetous practices you would make merchandise of yourself. And of course we know it's a covetous practice to desire benefits from men who exercise authority. And don't give me any of this trash that, oh, it's all fake because it's phony money and fiat currency and everything. You're getting real stuff. You're getting real food that is really the product of real labor. And I don't begrudge you that. If all you can do is go on welfare or some sort of SSI or whatever it is that you need to depend on. I'm not telling you you can't do it. I'm just telling you what it is. And it's why you're in bondage. Why you're not free souls under God. I'm not telling you not to pay your tally of bricks. You still pay your tally of bricks. But you're going to have to come together to get the straw you're going to need. James one twenty two. But be doers of the word. Not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way. And straight away forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth, he he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. And And I said it this morning. If you do not have a social welfare system through tens, hundreds, and thousands, they can take care of the needy of your society in hard times. Hard times. In food shortages. You're not seeking the kingdom. If you're not working towards that goal, you're not seeking the kingdom. You're just playing at church. Second Peter one fifteen. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after many cease to to have these things always in remembrance that that you take care of. wherefore beloved seeing that you look for such things be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blemish what was pure religion taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of society, unspotted by the world, which is the constitutional order and system of government of Rome, which used force to provide for the needy through a system of social welfare. That was a snare. Pure religion is doing it without that. And if if you think, well, no, I can do that, and you make up some feeble excuse, you're into folly. And as we discussed this morning, folly makes the ointment stink, makes the oil stink. Anyway, peeking back at the board to see if anybody raised their hand. Okay, I better open up the chat room in case somebody wants to ask a question. And we're, I guess, 
a couple hours in, halfway through. So anyway, if anybody has any other questions, we cover a lot of ground here. Uh, and I, like I was pointing out this Sator, this, this symbol, this is a symbol of Christianity that was passed amongst the, you know, that you would find it carved in a, a column, you'd find it uh, carved in a storm, stone in the ground. And it took some time to carve this because, you know, it has all these letters and everything. But it was a sign to other Romans that you were a Christian. And why was it popular? Because they believed in hard work and they believed in what you sow, you reap. And they believed in taking responsibility for one another. You know, like the Roman centurion. If I tell one of my men to go do this, he's going to go do it. I know I can trust him. Because they're men of integrity. And they saw this integrity in the Christian way. They didn't see people going around with superstition and, and false belief. They saw people actually not feeding at the trough of the civil government, but taking care of one another through righteousness. Oh, I see a hand up. Okay, you're uh, 5580, which I think is Stephen. Your mic is live. Go ahead. Um, this morning you were talking about stinky oil, and that was... Uh wonder what you were implying by that. Stinky oil? Well, you know, they these are all metaphors. And, and of course, you know, people are supposed to believe that if you had the right kind of offering on your, on your altar of stone, if you have the right kind of offering on your altar of stone, that when you burned up your offering, it would be a sweet savor to God. But it's it's not a sweet savor. If you burn up a sheep on an altar of stone... If you burn up a sheep on a pile of stones, it stinks. Absolutely stinks. And as a matter of fact, because of physics and gases in the sheep, there will be explosions and everything else. Nobody in their right mind would do this twice. Where you set a sheep up on an altar and set it on fire and think you're making God happy. That isn't what they're talking about at all. Well, also, you know, the foolish virgins who were out of the system... You know, they're virgins. They're, the idea of being virgins is they're not married to the, to the temple of Ishtar. They're not married to the temple of, uh, of, uh, Jupiter. They're not taking the benefits of those tables that are a snare. So this is a metaphor telling you these are virgins. They're not doing that. But what are they doing? They're dancing around pretending that they're, they're good. That they're righteous. Because they're not in that system. They're not, they're not idolaters. Because they're not a part of that system. They're not a part of that covetous system. And they're young and they're, they're getting by. But they're not getting any oil. How do you get oil? How do you make oil? You have to produce fat. And then you take the fat from that oil thing. You know, I mean, it could be maybe you have an olive orchard and you're getting olive oil. But you have to invest in it to make sure it gets watered at time. You want to get lots of oil from your olives or lots of fat from your lambs so that you can make, you know, put it in your lamp and have a light. Well, metaphorically and physically, you have to fatten your sheep. You have to water your olive oil uh, orchard. And then you can get that, you can get back from that investment 
oil. Well, it's the same way in a system of charity, which is what the kingdom of God, it's a system of charity. If you want oil to light your lamp, your holy lamp, in your heart and your mind, you have to sacrifice. You have to invest in others. You know, that's what Jesus is talking about. When he's talking about, you know, put don't don't invest in central banks. Don't don't invest in treasuries. Don't invest in having all kinds of wealth and riches. But invest in one another because that's how you get oil back. You you fatten your parents, you fatten your neighbor. And then that and hopes that that oil will come back to you, same as they were talking in Ecclesiastes, cast your bread upon the waters and hope that it comes back to you. So that's how you get oil. But a foolishness, what is foolishness? Force. That you're, you're not sacrificing, you know, like you go to all the churches and they all have some, you know, like, you know, we're, we're collecting for the missions. You know, and we're we'll send a basket around, and everybody put in something for the missions. Oh, we collected five thousand dollars for the missions. So, so that's charity. That's great. Everybody gave some money, and we had five thousand dollars for the charity, for the missions. But now, if you guys need anything, we want you to go to men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over that the other, and take away from your neighbors so that you can have free education, free health care, get your student loans paid off, all that stuff. Well, that's foolishness. That's folly. That's you forcing your neighbor to provide for you. That little bit of foolishness, that little bit of folly, that little bit of signing up at the pagan temples in idolatry to get benefits at the expense of others makes your oil, all the oil, stink. It, it's, it, it contaminates the good that you do. Because it's not pure religion. It's false religion. It's public religion. It's religion by force. It's religion by a covetous practice. So a little bit of folly makes the oil stink so that nobody wants it. Now, I, I mentioned this morning on this morning's program that somebody could ask me about oil that makes things stink. Well, we we broke a chain drive chain on uh, on the baler, and we robbed an old. We ordered a new chain, but it won't be here for days. So we robbed an old chain. One Nissan robbed an old chain off of a uh, an old machine, a wire baler that had the same size chain on it, twenty forty chain. And so we wanted to soak it in oil. So I I knew I had a five gallon bucket with some oil in it that I've used for soaking, but I had a different lid on it and. Evidently, a couple of mice had gotten down and drowned in the oil. And when we went and opened it up, he saw this thing like floating. And he reached in and he put his hand underneath it to pull it out of the oil and discovered that it was an absolutely decomposing mouse and threw it down and, you know, washed his hands. But, you know, like four or five hours later, he says, the wind's still right. I can still smell that dead mouse. <laughs> so, I mean... That's the metaphor. It made all the oil, and we were going to use that oil. I ended up pouring that oil out into another container, and we didn't use that oil. We got fresh oil. Because all the oil stunk because of the dead mouse. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a reality, but it's also a metaphor. That if, if flies get into your oil, 
if foolishness gets into your oil, it makes all the oil stink. It just it just permeates through all the oil. I mean, and anybody, you know, like if you have oil that you you say you put olive oil in your lamps to burn, you're wealthy enough to put olive oil in your lamps. So you have a container of olive oil. And somebody leaves the lid off and flies get in there and drown in there. They're going to make all that oil stink. Everybody knew that back then because everybody burned oil of some sort or fat or something to light a, a candle at night. That was the only light they were going to have at night. There was no flashlights. You know, so that was it. So everybody was familiar with that metaphor. That, but he put it, he applied it to a little foolishness. Now he already explained what foolishness is. And we know it from, you know, going back to Proverbs. We know what foolish is. Uh, we know it by going back to Samuel and Saul. That was foolish when he forced an offering. Well, it was foolish when the king forced an offering and his kingdom would not stand. If you force your neighbor to pay for your child's education, through a system of taxation. That's foolishness. That's not wisdom. That's foolishness. So, then you say, well, then I gave a a $10,000 check to the missions. And so, now I get credit for that. Well, you get oil for that. You know, spiritual oil for that. I could tell you stories about spiritual oil, but I'm not going to do it on the air. That's a private conversation. <laughs> it may be a real private conversation. <laughs> but uh, it it makes, it, it taints the $10,000 you gave to the mission. It makes it worthless. It, it makes it stink to God. You know, because you, you're mixing it. You cannot eat, drink of the cup of devils and the cup of righteousness. You can't do both. I didn't make up that rule. God did. You know, Christ said that. I'm just quoting him. I'm not picking on anybody who has to go, if you're an elderly person, I do not want to see you starve. What I want to see is all you young bucks out there, and I know, Stephen, you're a young buck to me. (laughs) I know you're getting older, but uh, we're all getting older. But there's a lot of 20-year-olds out there. There's a lot of 18 year olds out there. They need to be t- picking up the slack. They need to be helping us set up the kingdom. We know how it looks tens, hundreds, and thousands. Free assemblies. First fruits. Jump starting the kingdom. And donating on a regular basis, on a religious basis, for the purposes of creating this alternative. Of righteousness, of taking care of one another, totally unspotted by the giveaway of the men who exercise authority. And I don't take welfare. I don't take social security. I don't. I don't take any of those benefits. And I'm not a young buck anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, I we have a tractor that has a really stiff clutch on it, and it's. Farm man, we actually—I just worked on it, changed the lift pump on it the other day. I mean, it's—it's it's not older than me, but it's almost older than me. <laughs> but uh, we keep it running because we just can't afford new machinery, and this is how we do everything. 
But uh, the clutch is really stiff on that. The spring is just stiff on it for, you know, in the days when, and the power steering, you know, it, it, most of the power is in your arms. But uh, I, I looked at my knees last night and I showed my wife and my left knee is like twice the size of my right knee. <laughs> but it's that clutch. It happens every year when we start loading hay and stacking hay. We had to stack already over a thousand bales. Uh, but I used to do it. My leg would get a little stiff. But now, I mean, I'm getting to be an old guy. But the reality is, is that uh, we need to start taking care of one another. We need people who are willing to dedicate their lives. Uh, that are willing to sleep on the couch and work 16-hour days to help take care of people they don't even know. That's what we're going to need. And it not it shouldn't just be old guys. The old guys need to be there. But, you know, the retirement age for a Levite, it's in the Bible. It's 55. <laughs> we're supposed to retire from manual labor. Now, I, I, as long as I can do manual labor, I will do some. But I shouldn't be the one that has to do it. It's the young people have to do it. And they have to... It's it's outside of the realm of thinking because they don't understand that you have to be willing to do this. Can you imagine what it was like in the bondage of Egypt? To even be a young man, you survive being aborted. You survive being cast into the river. Your parents had to make sacrifices so that you could survive to that adulthood. It may... They did it to weaken the Israelites, but they strengthened them by putting that pressure on them. But they are pretty masterful at it now, how to weaken the people. Gifts, gratuities, and benefits. Public education. Free benefits. Free health care. That, that is destroying the people. And because they provide it by taking away from your neighbor... There's nothing but stinky oil left in the country. You know, we're, we're seeing, you know, one of the things that is draining the pocketbooks of Americans and people all over the world is the rise in the price of what? Oil. <laughs> and that, the rise in the price of oil. And then, of course, they make the oil stink. You know, they put ethanol in it. <laughs> I don't even buy ethanol gas it, it ruins the, the equipment most of our equipment's old equipment so I don't even buy it so anyway I don't I kind of rabbit trailed around there a little bit but oil this is this is one thing that I was it talks about your oil and the, and the, the foolish virgin having to go find oil because they don't have enough oil because they they squandered all their oil dancing around instead of organizing into the ten hundreds and thousands and taking care of the elderly and the needy of their society. They didn't do that. And nobody's going to take care of them. And they should not expect it. Yeah, they didn't go get, you know, the, the benefits from the benefactors who exercise authority. They didn't pray to the fathers of the earth for their daily bread. Because they were virgins. They didn't, they didn't access that. But in their youth, they squandered it. Just having a good time. Taking care of themselves. Making their own fortune. But eventually, we all get old. 
And we have to hope and pray that our, either if our children or our nephews and our nieces will take care of us. Or we will have to go to the men who exercise authority one over the other. If you have been one of the foolish ones, admit it. Accept it. Now do what you can to seek the kingdom of God. There's all kinds of things you can do. Like we, I've pointed this out several times in the last week. We have thousands of recordings. Thousands of articles explaining the kingdom. And I just added to our article on Constantine, like I said at the beginning of this program, showing that Constantine was not a Christian. The church he established was not a Christian church. It was an abomination. It was false. Its oil stunk. Because it was still depending 100 years later, 200 years later, 1,000 years later. Yeah, 1,000 years later. I can give you the names of the people. King Philip of Austria, for what we know of as Austria today, who was the brother of Marie Antoinette, wanted to establish legal marriages where when you got married, you didn't go to church and get a church marriage, which is a two-party marriage, you and your spouse. That's a church marriage. In the canon law, even in the Roman church, the church is not a party to the union. They're just a witness. They're like a notary. And, and maybe a little bit of an advisor. To give you some hints of what you're getting into. But that, that idea of a, a state marriage has always been a three-party contract. You, your spouse, and the state. Always. You go back to the Justinian Codes. Always. Three-party contract. Between your spouse and the state and you. It still is that way today. And in our article and the first chapter of the book of the Covenants of the Gods, we have that laid out of people. See, if everybody was out on social media, if everybody was emailing all their friends and they said, well, I, I think we need to have state marriages. And I'm not against state marriages because a lot of you out there probably need a state marriage. Because of the fact that you you aren't people that, like the the recording I just you don't have any integrity and and women who who, who listen to guys who say well we don't want a state marriage we just want a, an agreement if I will not marry a couple who is not sitting down in the tens hundreds and thousands now of course I don't marry them I won't perform the ceremony. In holy matrimony for people who will not sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because if you won't do that, I know you don't care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. I mean, that's just, that, that is your testimony. I, I don't care about other people. If you're in a little congregation of ten, but you're not linked together in hundreds and thousands, I won't perform the ceremony for the people in the tens. Because you only love those who love you. And Christ says, you know, what do you have? you got nothing. You're not casting your bread upon the waters. You're just casting your bread in your little congregation. And it makes your oil stink. And, and so, the formula is clear. That you have to care not, and, and you not only, the Levite can... Cross the road anytime he wants, like the Good Samaritan, and go over there to somebody who's not even a part of the network, 
not in a free assembly. And he can decide to help them. Hopefully he is led by the Holy Spirit in doing so. We do it all the time. That's that's why we have the church property out here. Now nobody made the agreement or anything. But somebody somebody had a light inside them that that saw something inside us that they wanted to support. They didn't understand all the things that I talk about on the radio. But that was put on their heart to allow us to get that property for the church. Now, what are we going to use that property for? We could use it for all kinds of things. And we, we have put aside, just because a couple of people in the order has put aside some money, that we could actually build, a, you know, a health center, a care home, a refuge. We could do all that. But I got to staff it with other people. And it will deplete everything that is set aside. I, but I don't want to use that money. I want to see people come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and fund it directly. Say, yeah, we want to fund this. We don't know if we'll ever use it because we live in Texas or we live in New Hampshire or we live in Florida or we live in Missouri. But we want to see somebody starting to create that network of the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they're willing to cast their bread upon the waters to make it happen. You know, I already got a volunteer to be this one of the seven. Uh, they sent me an email, and I I, I appreciate their email. I saw they always usually send me two emails, <laughs> and and I read it, and I know it. I, I love them, and, and I bless them for that. But of course, the one who's going to pick, who of course will have to ask the congregations. Who do they think? Well, ask, ask, and we'll do that through the ministers. Says, look out amongst yourselves and find men you trust. And if you find men you trust, we will point them over this matter. I mean, that's the way, that's the way that we see Peter doing it. But it, the problem was brought to him by the congregations who saw that the needy were being neglected. And right now, the needy are being neglected all over the world, but most of the needy aren't at that time. They were sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And of those tens, hundreds, and thousands, they saw that some people, because the famine was greater, it hit the Greek states, city-states, earlier. That's If you watch how the dearth moved across the Roman Empire, you see where it hit first. All the way across the Roman Empire. Now, remember, all the way, even in Pompeii, you find the Sator of the Romans, which were was evidence that Christians are there gathering, taking care of one another to faith, hope, and charity. It wasn't just the symbol of the fish. People say, oh, that, uh, there's a symbol of fish in, the, in this cave or in this catacomb. So they were in there in the church worshiping God, saying praise. No, they knew that worshiping God was not just saying words and, and re- endless reciting of prayers and songs but it was being doer of the word and they knew that being doer of the word was to practice pure religion and take care of the needy of society and that's why we see them actually doing it in Acts but everybody today they go to church and they say they're worshipping God but they need anything they go to the men who exercise authority and they don't see 
that that's directly opposite of what Christ said to do. And we come along and we point that out. And people that come on the call, hang up. <laughs> Not all of them. There's still, there's still other guys in the queue. But enough of them do. Because they say, oh my gosh, you mean actually take responsibility for myself? Now, you know, why so many Roman centurions? Because Roman centurions were doers. You know, I mean, we should have lots of cops in this network. Lots of soldiers in this network. But then who's telling them about the keys of the kingdom? Who's spreading the message of, if you don't live by faith, hope, and charity, you will go under tyrants. That's why, you know, one of my favorite quotes, I'll, go, I'll do it again. Polybius. The people, become, the masses, become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of force and violence. Welfare through the state. They begin to de- degenerate. The social bonds break down. The social bonds needed for a free society break down. They degenerate into perfect savages. Fighting once more a monarch and a king. So what does a perfect savage look like? Something happens they don't like. They don't even understand it entirely, but they don't like it. They get mad and they burn down their own community. They rob their local merchants and stores. It's not like the the people who thought the election was stolen and went down to the capital to protest. Mostly peaceful protests. Even the ones who went in when the doors were open for them and the barriers were removed by the guards. Have that on video. And they walked in. And I always remember one guy said, should we be going in here? Maybe it's a trap. (laughs) I think of the line from Star Wars. It's a trap! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I wanted to yell. But it was too late. They were already in there. I warned people that were there the day before that there was going to be a trap. They were there in Washington, D.C. texting me and sending me videos of them walking down the streets. And I warned them that they were going to trap you. They were going to set you up. And they did. Fortunately, he wasn't. He didn't go into the Capitol. But he also, he also has not joined the network. And if you don't join the network, it, the kingdom of God is a row only. It's a responsibility only. You have. We were commanded to make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And each of you are commanded in your heart to cast your bread upon the waters. Each of you are commanded in your heart, although I don't know if you're listening to it, to be still and know. Each of us are to do this. But we are to do it together. In free assemblies. And if you don't, you will not be free. You will not find yourself down on the shores of the Red Sea with the army of the Pharaoh coming down on you with everything they got, but God standing between you and them. It's not going to be easy, but it will work if you have faith and walk accordingly. So anyway, I know your question was originally about stinky oil, but oil is a metaphor for what you get when you walk in the ways of God. You get the holy oil, the holy blessing. Oil, fat, prosperity. It's holy when it's it's coming from God. 
lot of people preach the prosperity gospel. But it's a prosperity that stinks. I've seen those people's. I, I know prosperous people. I used to work in Beverly Hills and Bel Air and all those places. The rich of the rich. The movie stars. I used to work in their homes. I, I was a cabinet builder in Los Angeles. And I was... I don't know why they picked me to do it. I was the guy to go around to all the customers and fix up all the little things that they wanted to fix up that were maybe just not quite right or, you know, like somebody took hinges off and I would go there and there'd be a butler sitting there standing next to me with a little whisk broom and a, <laughs> uh, uh, a pan in case I got a little shavings on the floor. He'd clean up right after me. I'd be on closed circuit TV when I walked into the house. But I also, I, I met their kids. Oh, my gosh. The ointment in those houses stunk. And their kids stunk. Their kids were terrible. Beasts. Monsters. And they were abused by wealth. So, yeah. There's no substitute for righteousness. Especially not self-righteousness. So, anyway, I hope that gives you a little bit of a picture. Did you have anything else? Appreciate it. Okay. Yeah, I appreciate your questions. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. More than welcome. Thank you for calling. Well, we're we're still trying to work on that better. We seem to be froze up on the nodder, and we can't figure out exactly what it was. I noticed that my son was sent from South Dakota was sending me texts on how to fix it, or what he thinks we might have to do. But I, I have another old bailer I want to clean up and get ready, and I have a swather I want to clean up, and we're shearing sheep. Believe it or not, this late in the year, on Tuesday. <laughs> so, anyway, so we have our hands full, and we're going to be doing this episode on Ezra. But I want to, uh, you know, if you go to Preparing You, you can look up the article on Constantine. And uh, I have the audios I need to edit. A lot of other things are going on here. Uh, and what I want to do is set it up so that I can go through Jordan Peterson's, because I know... That now Jordan Peterson's, the, the, the series he did on Exodus is now going live, not live. It's going on YouTube. They're sharing it on YouTube. Well, I want to get in there and give counter arguments to some of the mistakes they made and some of the things they missed. Uh, I think they did a really good job considering what modern Christianity has become, but they missed some of the most essential elements of it. And it's just going to take a lot of time and a lot of work to do that. And the the harvest may be great someday, but the laborers are few. <laughs> so people need to really work at sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Really start contributing to their ministers and start uh, uh, doing the funding necessary to take care of the needy of society. And we will do what we can to provide that. Now, ultimately, we don't want to build convalescent homes and, you know, put old people in convalescent homes. We, we want to be able to create an alternative to, you know, my wife and I met in a convalescent home. We've seen the convalescent homes from the ground up way back over half a century ago. <laughs> uh, we were working in convalescent homes. So we've, we know what not to do by that experience. But knowing what to do and how to take care of the needy of society and how to involve people in that process 
we've we've come a long way. We've got a lot of things in place. But what we know needs to be in place more than anything else is that we need to care about our neighbor as much as we care about ourselves. But i got people showing up here, so I'm going to call it an end to it. I appreciate the... Stefan and all the other people that were in the queue, even though they didn't say anything. I see somebody did come into the chat room, but he just gave me a thumbs up. I still don't know who that is. <laughs> uh, somebody from Northwest Media. Uh, but uh, no questions. So with that, I will play the outro. And until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.